0: Consider the weakness of our frame, and give us a rich measure of your Spirit, that we may deal rightly with the mystery of salvation revealed in the life and work of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Mystery. It's something that is difficult or impossible to understand or explain. That can be either vexing and divisive, or challenging and entertaining then I spent many miles to and from Montana listening to mysteries by Stuart Woods and Clyde Custler. Mystery, in the context of Paul's world, most commonly referred to the mystery cults, their secret teachings and rituals, which he attacked in his letter to the Ephesians. Here, in Romans, the more likely influence would be the apocalyptic literature of the Jewish intertestamental period. Schreiner summarizes, quote, In the Old Testament and Second Temple literature, it and his mystery, refers to a secret element of God's plan that has been hidden from human beings but has now been revealed, particularly the Gospel of Jesus Christ. This is the meaning of mystery in the opening line of our epistle reading. We read, Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. But before we can address this mystery, we must attend to another mystery that appears earlier in Romans. Let me introduce it by calling to your remembrance a passage from Isaiah. Yahweh asks through his prophet, Can a woman forget her nursing child, that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. Close quote. It jars our sensibilities that a mother could forget her child. But that, what is even more shocking, is the mystery that the son has forgotten his mother, his creator. But that is the mystery in the first two and a half chapters of Paul's letter to Rome. Paul blasts the Gentiles in chapter 1, claiming to be wise they become fools and exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man birds and animals and creeping things. In chapter 2, he takes the Jews to task as well. You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Both Jews and Gentiles are all alike under sin, as Paul summarizes in chapter 3, citing Psalms 14 and 53. Both, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. No, not even one. Let's find the text. I recall a Whitehorse Inn man on the street interview of several years back. More specifically, Shane Rosenthal, the director, um, interviewed attendees at an evangelical pastor's conference. Asking if they would agree with the text that I just read. A vast majority disagree. No, people seek after God, they claim. Let alone did any of them identify it as God's sacred word. But that is the mystery. The first mystery. That we have forgotten our Creator. And do not even recognize our fallenness. And so we need to confess, as we did this morning, pleading with the public and God, Be merciful to me, a sinner. But the condemnation of God's law is quickly assuaged in the latter half of chapter 3, as Paul declares, For there is no distinction, meaning Jew or Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by His grace as a gift. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood, to be received by faith. God declaring, You are redeemed for the sake of His Son's death. And resurrection. Because of the lateness of Easter this year, we missed this glorious portion of Paul's letter, as we started a selectively continuous reading of Romans after Trinity Sunday in chapter 5. For the last two weeks, we heard portions from chapters 9 and 10, in which Paul concludes the question of Jews and Gentiles, the children of Israel on one hand and those outside of the covenant. The sound reading for today hopscotches its way through chapter 11, but I've chosen to read a, a larger single block from verses 25 through 32, which contain the conclusion of everything that Paul discussed in 9 through 11 with this mystery. Paul signals this conclusion I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, replicating his introduction in chapter 1, verse 13. But the mystery, this mystery, has caused more than its share of mischief in the church ever since. The first era that is troubled the church grows out of Paul's statement in verse 26. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. The problem in Paul's days is the same as in our day. There are many in Israel, the biological descendants of Jacob, who utterly reject Christ. So how are they saved? Middendorf summarizes various like the two-covenant theory, which generally asserts that Jews are saved by God's choice according to their race and or their works, while Christ opens the door to grace for Gentiles. Quote. Such thinking in our day gives rise to a misdirected emphasis in nation with the nation-state of Israel, along with plans and preparations for the restoration of the sacrificial service in a renewed temple at Jerusalem. But this two-covenant interpretation must be rejected. It contradicts the words of Isaiah, which Paul affirms in Romans 9. Though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. Even more than Paul's direct Old Testament citation, the suggestion that all or any of the Israelites are saved by their DNA and apart from faith in Christ attacks the very hard to Paul's letter to Rome. Just go back to the entire letter. Citing aback backup, Paul affirms the righteous person will live from faith. Not genealogy. Not works. In fact, Romans 9.11 demonstrates that the salvation depends on God's choosing, 9.11, His call, 9.12, His mercy, 9.16, and His grace, 11.5 and 6. Nothing else. A second error, perhaps, over his action against this idea of a singular salvation in Christ, his cross and his open of attempting to supplant Israel. The problem here is mistaking the part for the whole. After relating the parable of the tenants in Matthew 21, Jesus is very pointed in his judgment against the chief priests and the Pharisees. We hear him declare, Therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people, producing its fruits. And yet the kingdom remains populated by Jews and Greeks. Paul makes this point by way of analogy in the section immediately before our reading, verses 17 to 24. He does it with the image of an olive tree. If I may paraphrase, the Old Testament believing patriarchs and all believing Jews reside in the cultivated olive tree. Due to unbelief, some branches are broken off and consequently hardened. Verse 25 A partial hardening has come upon Israel then by a divine mystery that is contrary to nature. Many, but not all Gentiles, those who believe, are grafted into God's one olive tree. Also in verse 25, the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. In this way, verse 26, the fullness of believing ethnic Israelites who remain where they were, belong by God's gracious choosing, and the fullness of the Gentiles who mysteriously now enter, will be saved together as the one Israel of God. That is the Gospel. The wonderful mystery that begins Paul's conclusion to these three chapters. You are grafted in to Israel. Grafted to the cross of Christ with His blood. Sealed by the Spirit in the water of baptism. You have left the family of your birth, and have been welcomed into the family of God. Into the true Israel. When Texas Pastor Jim Dennison was in college, he served as a summer missionary in East Malaysia. While he was there, he attended a small local church. And in one of those worship services, a teenage girl came forward to be baptized. During the service, Dennison noticed a set of old, worn-out luggage leaning against the wall of the church building. He asked the pastor about it. The pastor pointed to the girl and said, who had just been baptized, and told Dennison, her father said, She was baptized as a Christian. She could never go home again. So she brought her luggage. Are your bags packed? This transfer, this movement from one family, the family of our birth to the family of God, to Israel, is the mystery that Paul would teach us. It is a mystery that works both ways. Listen again to a portion of our text. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient, in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. Notice the word disobedient that Paul assigns to us prior to conversion and to Israel as a cause of our conversion. The root word here is not obedient, but persuaded. And hence the negated compound word of our text could also be read as unpersuaded or disbelief. We can paraphrase this way. For just as you formerly lived in unbelief and have not received mercy because they did not believe and subsequently nailed Jesus to the cross because of it, So now some of them, seeing the mercy shown to you, now believe, and have received mercy. Middendorf reminds us that, Paul repeatedly stresses that the critical issue remains a specific sin, that of unbelief. Romans 3. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means! Romans 10, But they, that is Israel, have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? It was the unbelieving branches that were broken off from the olive tree of true Israel in chapter 11. So the underlying sin is unbelief, Three times in a reading. But it is matched four times by God's mercy. God, in His mercy, has brought us into His family. His Israel through the life, death, and resurrection of His Son. What did the incarnation and work of Jesus Christ, how did it change the world? Historian Rodney Stark argues that there was one huge factor that helped capture the attention of the ancient world. Christianity's revolutionary emphasis on mercy. Stark writes, In the midst of the squalor, misery, illness, and anonymity of ancient cities, Christianity provided an island of mercy and security. And it started with Jesus. In contrast to the pagan world, and especially to philosophers, mercy was regarded as a character defect, and pity as a pathological emotion. Because mercy involves providing unearned help or relief, it is contrary to justice. At least so they would reason. This was the moral climate in which Christianity taught that a merciful God shows mercy to us and expects mercy from us. We hear it on Jesus' lips, Matthew 12. If you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. We see it in our Gospel lesson. Have mercy on me, O Lord, Son of David. And Jesus showed mercy to the Canaanite woman. God be merciful to me, a sinner. Here is the meaning of this mystery, which opens our reading and prompts Paul's toxology that follows it. Oh, the depths of the riches, of wisdom, and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments, and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor, or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him Through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Now may the peace which surpasses all understanding guard your hearts and minds through faith in Christ Jesus to life everlasting.